From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Winds of change are buffeting the Republicans, and not just with scandals and angst about the war. The GOP is changing directions on energy policy as well. I think you see most of the Republican candidates being very progressive in their views of what we should do on energy, that we need to move forward and have a forward-thinking energy policy that's not reliant on oil and fossil fuel. Also, more than two decades after Jacques Cousteau fought to save the manatees, the creatures are still charming tourists. It's just like people. Some manatee calves are very well-behaved and stay with their mother. and Other manatee calves are little brats who don't come when they're called and ignore their mother. But now Cousteau's grandson says there's another threat, the thirst for fresh water. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. While the nation talks about sex scandals on Capitol Hill, the war in Iraq, and the jihad against America as big factors in the upcoming congressional elections, there's another issue that's playing heavily in many races, energy. It's not just the pocketbook issue of high gas prices. Voters are voicing concern about how energy choices affect jobs, national security, and the global climate. Living on Earth's Jeff Young has our report. When gas prices topped $3 a gallon, Democrats said Republicans were responsible. Now that prices are dropping, Texas Republican Joe Barton says turnabout is fair play. I'm taking credit from going down because I was blamed when they went up. He's only partly joking. As chair of the House Energy Committee, Barton was a major force in passing last year's Energy Act. The act gave billions in subsidies for all sorts of energy development, but was especially generous to oil, coal, and nuclear power. Barton says it's starting to take effect, and that's something Republican candidates can use on the campaign trail. But really, I think we can take credit because we believe in market forces and we put things in play that let markets operate more efficiently. The Energy Policy Act of 2005 is having a noticeable impact uh, in a positive way, and I Republicans can certainly be very positive about it. The House Republican leaders also pushed to open the Arctic Refuge and the nation's coastal areas to oil and gas drilling. But if you listen to the Republican candidates in the closest races, you won't hear many speeches about Barton's Energy Act or a need for offshore drilling. No, actually they're going the opposite direction. David Jenkins is with a group called Republicans for Environmental Protection. From New England through the Philadelphia suburbs to parts of the South and Midwest, Jenkins finds many Republicans in the most competitive districts have a different energy message. I think you see most of the Republican candidates being very progressive in their views of what we should do on energy, that we need to move forward and have a forward-thinking energy policy that's not reliant on oil and fossil fuels. We need to move toward alternatives, we need to diversify our energy choices, and we need to be really serious about conservation. Jenkins says that appeals to voters concerned about the environment and those who worry that oil imports undermine national security. And it's a way for Republican candidates to distance themselves from the energy policies of Republican congressional leaders. A recent poll indicates that's probably a smart political move right now. New York University's Bradamus Center for the Study of Congress found only about 10 percent of voters polled said Congress has done a good job on energy. 
about 80 percent worried about energy, and 70 percent say they're worried about global warming. The poll was taken in July when gas prices were higher. Despite the recent price drop, Democrats hope to tap into that discontent. The American people know that the gas prices are going to go back up. The Senate's top Democrat, Harry Reid of Nevada, says prices could spike again with the next Mideast crisis or Gulf hurricane. Democratic leaders say if voters give them control of Congress, they'll make kicking the oil habit a top priority. By using the sun, by using the strength of the earth, geothermal, by using wind and biomass. And until we accept that, uh, we are going to continue to have these violently fluctuating prices with oil. South Carolina Democratic Representative James Clyburn connects the dots between energy, the economy, and national security with the Democrats' ambitious goal. We will, within 10 years, make our country independent of foreign oil by investing in farming and rural communities that will give us the alternatives to foreign oil that we need. Candidates across the political spectrum stress the jobs to be gained by subsidizing biofuels. Bob Deneen leads the Renewable Fuels Association, the trade group for ethanol producers. He says the energy debate in some farm states comes down to who can do the most for the corn-based fuel. Well, and yeah, sometimes those debates get a little bit silly as candidates try to uh, one-up one another on, in terms of their support for renewable energy technologies. Uh, and, you know, you, you look at that with, with some degree of cynicism. The fact of the matter is they're, they're moving the debate forward. Uh, so it's all good. Some environmentalists doubt it's all good. They argue ethanol is a net energy loser when produced from corn grain. Emerging technology using plant fiber could soon improve that. For now, many in conservation circles are cheered by the prominent role renewable and alternative energies have found in this year's election campaign. Voters often rank environmental issues low among their concerns, but now it seems energy and the environment are tied up with national security and the economy, two of the most pressing items on voters' minds. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. One race where energy issues are center stage is in Missouri. You could say the debate is over ethanol, except there is no debate between the two contenders for the U.S. Senate over the value of ethanol. The scrapping there is over which person will do more to promote the production of crop-based fuels. In one corner is Republican Senator James Talent, who is running for a second term. My record on this is clear. I, I am uh, not only supporting uh, ethanol and biodiesel, but I've been a leader in that fight. I'm the co-chairman of the Biofuels Caucus. I received an award from the American Coalition for Ethanol. I'm going to tell you, uh, they don't give those awards to people unless they support ethanol. In the other corner is Democrat and former state auditor Claire McCaskill, who narrowly lost a run for Missouri's governorship two years ago. I was for ethanol before ethanol was cool. It's good for our economy, it's good for our environment, and it's good for our national security. Here to give us his analysis of the Missouri senatorial race is George Connor, an associate professor of political science at Missouri State University. Professor Connor, welcome to Living on Earth. Hello, thank you for having me. As I understand it, two years ago, Ms. McCaskill nearly won the governorship, but she lost it narrowly in some rural communities, right? That is correct. So what does the Democratic challenger, Ms. McCaskill, hope to gain by putting so much emphasis on ethanol? 
the the argument that Claire McCaskill is uh, facing is that she lost the governorship in part because she did not campaign hard in what we call outstate Missouri, what you would call rural Missouri. 114 counties in Missouri, 108, 109 of them are classified as rural, and Claire McCaskill lost in uh, all of those counties. And so she is searching for an issue that resonates with those voters, and she's really taken two tacks. The first is uh, that she has Missouri values, that she was born in Houston, Missouri, raised in a rural community, and that she understands the rural community, its values, its sympathies, its needs, its economic interests, and so on. And in particular, with respect to the economic interest, Missouri is an agricultural state. Those rural communities, corn is a very important commodity. And Claire McCaskill has focused on ethanol as an issue that she can tout, that she can uh, claim as a way to get entrance into those rural voters that she lost two years ago. Republican Senator Jim Talent, though, has been a big supporter of ethanol. In fact, he calls himself Mr. Ethanol. You'd, You'd think he'd have this issue sewn up. Senator Talent isn't as good or adept or willing to toot his own horn. Uh, He is known as an ethanol senator. Uh, His ads try and touch on that issue, but most of the work the senator talent does uh, with respect to ethanol is is in Washington. It is not something that's touted back here in Missouri. So you're right. He he might, based on his record, have the ethanol issue locked up, but because the average voter in Missouri doesn't know about his efforts in ethanol, he doesn't. Now, he has been campaigning on his record of supporting the energy bill that Congress passed last year and the boost that that legislation gave to ethanol. Yet I understand that his opponent is attacking uh, Senator Talent for that very same bill, saying that it uh, really shows a senator's support for the oil industry rather than ethanol. How can we have such very different interpretations of that one act of Congress? Well, in part, it's, uh, it's an issue of perspective. Claire McCaskill argues in other ads, as well as the one that you're referring to, that Senator Talent is basically in the pocket of big oil companies. And when gas prices were very high, uh, that was something that that she would, you know, hope would resonate with the voters. And so she's trying to shore up her base. Uh, she runs an ad with a farmer in uh, bib overalls saying how much money it costs to run his tractor and his farm equipment and so on. And then she tries to blame Senator Talent for the rising prices of gas by tying him to the oil company. And yet at the same time, Senator Talent runs an ad arguing that big oil companies oppose the energy bill, oppose the renewable uh, energy resources that were in that bill that were proposed there by the president. And so you have two candidates looking at exactly the same piece of legislation in exactly the opposite way. Now tell me, how does the oil and gas industry figure into this race? Uh, What significant campaign contributions, if any? Well, I should say Senator Talent has not quite twice as much money as Claire McCaskill in this campaign. And consider, I think all parties know that Senator Talent has taken money from big oil. Claire McCaskill has not taken money from the from the major oil interests, and, and that's part of her campaign as well. I'm not uh, in the pocket of big oil as opposed to my opponent. What does ethanol mean to Missourians? How do Missourians look at it? I think with respect to the campaigns, uh, there's multiple elements in the ethanol debate. I think both candidates are talking about reducing our dependence on foreign oil, and I think that has some resonance with the average voter. I think they're also talking in terms of national security, because if we reduce our dependence on foreign oil, we increase our national security. 
I think in the end, both candidates are almost shamelessly uh, uh, rooting for voters because what it comes down to in Missouri, ethanol means jobs. Ethanol means preserving the family farm. Ethanol means preserving a way of life. Ethanol means having a, a, mar- a market for the crops. Uh, um, ethanol has uh, many benefits, but it comes down to the bottom line, which is dollars and cents. And for the rural voter, ethanol is something that you can't afford to oppose. What's the significance of this Senate race for the state of Missouri? Well, I, I think in, in terms of the significance for the state, it's it's not as important as people would think. The Republicans control the House, they control the Senate, and they control the, go- the governorship. So I, it's not quite a lonely voice in the wilderness if Claire McCaskill were to win. But with respect to Missouri, it won't have that much of an impact. But I think that is not true at the national level. Uh, Missouri is a microcosm, or as they say, a bellwether state. So as Missouri goes, so goes the nation. So if Claire McCaskill does win, I think it has bigger implications nationally, because I think if the Democrats can win Missouri, that means they can win the Senate and potentially take over. Well, we'll be watching this one closely. Yeah, lots of stuff going on. George Connor is an associate professor of political science at Missouri State University. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up, get on the bus. Activists to our communities affected by environmental injustice. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Biodiesel fuel helps fight global warming and has fewer emissions than traditional diesel petroleum. And more and more truckers are getting on the bandwagon. Hundreds of fleets across the nation are now using biodiesel and diesel blends. Producer Shia Levitt hit the road to bring us this report. At Carl's Corner Truck Stop south of Dallas, Texas, a handful of drivers are filling up with biodiesel on a windy summer morning. The fuel, made from vegetable oil, is often blended with petroleum diesel at 5, 11, or 20 percent. The number of truck stops with biodiesel increased close to 40 percent within the last year to more than 480 today. Carl's Corner is relatively well-known among truckers since it was the first to carry Willie Nelson's biodiesel brand, BioWillie. Owner Carl Cornelius says it was Nelson himself who convinced him to start carrying the fuel. I didn't know my whole around about it, you know, as far as uh, biodiesel, but the truckers say you get better mileage, the exhaust is not hurting your eyes or anything else. It's beautiful stuff, and so the truckers convinced me, and, you know, that's who is going to put it on the map anyway. Biodiesel can go directly into any tank that takes diesel fuel. To some environmentalists, it's diesel's green alternative, since it can be made from renewable sources like soybean oil or waste products like used cooking grease. But ecological benefits aren't necessarily what's attracting truckers like Don Jallo and Bob Call. I'm a farmer too, so that's another reason. Anytime you can do anything for the family farmer, you know, that's a plus, you know. Help the trucking industry, there's another plus, you know. So get out from under OPEC and the oil companies, you know. They're making billions of dollars profit better than they ever have in the whole existence of their life, man, you know. There's no sense in that. 
Carl Cornelius says the BioWilly company aims to benefit farmers by buying their crops. Willy wants to put 50,000 farmers to work in Texas alone, you know, and so we put some of the family farmers back to work and guarantee them a price and make, you know, do away with foreign oil and we can stop some of the wars maybe. Many truckers feel a tie to farmers because they transport agricultural products. And so far, biodiesel is not allowed to travel by pipeline. Instead, it's hauled by rail or by tanker truck. So it's a source of work for truckers, too. The National Biodiesel Board ranks trucker outreach as one of its top priorities. Tom Vary says when he started talking to trucking executives about the fuel six years ago, it was frustrating. Before, it was always kind of a tough sell. But in the last couple of years, it's really turned around. At the largest truck show in the country, that's the Mid-America Truck Show in Louisville, Kentucky, 17% have tried it in 05, and in 2006, 40% have tried it. That's quite a jump in one year as far as truckers' usage of biodiesel. Very has been on the road a lot lately, talking to fleet owners and drivers at conferences and truck shows. And truckers are also hearing about the fuel from another source, legendary country music DJ Bill Mack. Mack constantly promotes it on his live call-in program on XM Satellite Radio's trucker station, Open Road. It's going to do a lot of good, and that's what the biodiesel is about. So getting those prices down, manufacturing it here in these United States, getting completely away from dependency from the Middle East or anywhere else. The Bill Mack Show is on air for four hours every weekday, and on Wednesdays he's joined for an hour by longtime friend and country music star Willie Nelson. Let's go to the phones and say, Red Man, are you there, pal? Hey, how you doing there, Mr. Mack, Mr. Nelson? While the publicity has produced some new customers from among the truck-driving fans, the biodiesel industry has still had to face some uphill challenges to its public image. After Minnesota mandated 2% biodiesel at all its diesel pumps, some fuels sold there turned out to be substandard. Some batches gelled in cold weather or caused fuel filters to clog, and many northern drivers became skeptical about trying the fuel. Very says these are merely growing pains of an industry in its infancy. We're growing so rapidly that we found that we, we did have some out-of-spec biodiesel going into the market, so we had to come together to address that issue and continue to keep consumer confidence high in the fuel. The largest trucking trade organization in the country, the American Trucking Associations, recently announced their endorsement of biodiesel blends up to 5%, as long as the fuel meets quality standards. This represents a huge shift in policy, says ATA's Rich Moskowitz. Five years ago, there were a lot of rumors out there that it would cause long-term damage to the engines, that it would result in drastic fuel economy reductions, and as a result, the industry was adamantly opposed to its use. Recent tax incentives made biodiesel more cost-competitive for trucking companies, some of whom see it as a way to expand the fuel supply. Last year, Cisco Corporation, for example, owner of the largest private corporate fleet in the country, started using biodiesel in 400 of its vehicles. Company representatives say the results have been positive so far, and they're hoping to expand their use as the fuel becomes more available. Biodiesel production and consumption in the U.S. tripled between 2004 and 2005. It's likely to double again by the end of this year. But Rich Moskowitz points out it's still only a small fraction of the diesel market. The biodiesel industry themselves have forecasted that they would reach a billion gallons production by 2015. One billion gallons of biodiesel is essentially... 2.7% of what the trucking industry consumes in a year.
New research by the Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Lab now suggests that biodiesel blends of up to 20 percent may actually be no worse in terms of nitrogen oxide emissions than regular diesel, contrary to what was initially thought. NOx emissions are among the precursors to ozone. Biodiesel compares favorably with diesel fuel for other pollutants like CO2, the major climate warming gas, and dangerous particles that can cause asthma and other respiratory problems. Still, Vary says truckers' biggest question about biodiesel is where to get it. The National Biodiesel Board recently launched a website and in August launched a 24-hour trucker hotline to help drivers find fueling sites near them. For Living on Earth, I'm Shia Levitt. As Latinos continue to grow in political strength, their leaders have increasing influence and power at the highest levels of environmental policymaking, especially in California. Now national Latino leaders are working overtime to bring more brown and poor people into a broader American environmental movement. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports. If you have any doubt that Latinos are already shaping environmental power politics, consider the recent landmark global warming legislation in California. It came to the governor's desk via Fabian Nunez, the Speaker of the State Assembly. Nunez recently exulted over how he and environmental supporters played hardball with Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. They wanted to allow certain industries to circumvent the requirements under this law. We said, we don't want to go there. Eventually, they said the governor wouldn't come on board. He himself said, I'm not going to sign this bill unless the governor can delay those caps and those requirements. We said, absolutely not. In order to win the fight for the global warming bill, Speaker Nunez had to persuade the caucus of Latino lawmakers, which tends to vote against measures that could hurt jobs. But no sooner had he gotten that sewn up when a mostly Latino group to his left, the environmental justice groups, objected to the idea of trading in carbon. They say it can lead to citing more dirty industries in their already gritty neighborhoods. These grassroots groups got meetings with top advisors to the governor, like Linda Adams, the state's highest environmental official. They have a tremendous amount of power. <laughs> Could they have kept this from happening? Uh, possibly. It, it, it was uh, a, an issue that we paid close attention to. Mainline environmental organizations such as Environmental Defense now hire people like Rafael Aguilera, who not only knows his nitrogen oxide from his sulfur, but has cultural knowledge as well. It's yet another way Latinos are shaping environmental policy. Oh, I'd say that support from community groups, communities that are impacted with pollution that tend to be predominantly communities of color, was very persuasive and very important to our victory here with AB32. Had we had them opposed to the bill, I am also uh, quite confident that we would have lost it. Meanwhile, national Latino leaders are trying to elevate the environment among their own. We welcome you to day three, Environmental Day of the National Latino Congreso. At a recent high-level Latino policy summit in Los Angeles, Roger Rivera of the National Hispanic Environmental Council roused and then ribbed his audience. Little honesty here. <clears throat> when you saw the brochure for the Congreso, and you flipped through it, and you saw civil rights, you saw education, you saw immigration on the agenda, you're probably pleased. And then when you got maybe on day three, you said, wow, the environment. What's up with that? <laughs> We're Latinos. We don't do the environment, right? 
Then Rivera proceeded to bore into the crowd, telling them why the environment needs to be at the top of a national Latino political agenda. He cited the lack of urban parks, the good jobs available in environmental technology, and the scholarship money for environmental science. But if those reasons don't persuade you, he said, If nothing is done on global warming and climate change, and it comes, look at each other, look at your familia, and figure out, what are you going to do? I can tell you what wealthy people are going to do. The day they hear that um, all of the ice sheets on Greenland and the glaciers have melted, and now New York and Miami and LA and other cities are flooding, they're gonna turn to each other and say, hey, fire up the helicopter and let's, let's go to our third home in Aspen or Vail. Millions of people of color are going to be dramatically impacted by climate change and global warming. We must take control of our environmental destiny. The biggest applause of this day came when California Assembly Speaker Nunez said Latinos should make climate change the number one issue in the 2008 presidential election. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. Ghost towns, ghost towns. These are the words that keep repeating over and over in my mind as I board a large tour bus with people who come from communities in several southern states. The Environmental Justice for All tour took Louisiana lawyer Monique Hardin and other advocates throughout America South. Their bus was one of three visiting some of the poorest areas in our country, most of which are communities of color fighting for their right to environmental protection. Ms. Harden recently returned from the trip and brings us this audio diary. The idea for this tour came from grassroots community advocates who wanted to break the isolation felt by people of color and the poor who live, work, study, worship, and play in the places across America that are used as dumping grounds by both private corporations and our government. What they struggle against is legal. What they struggle against damages their health and threatens their lives. We visit the people who live in the shadows of incinerators and smokestacks and below the deep scars of mountaintop removal. There are no celebrities or politicians on our bus. Instead, we have ordinary people who are attempting to do the extraordinary, restore their communities, and protect the health of residents from a broad array of operations that damage their environment. Sunday, our first stop on the tour was in Port Arthur, Texas, and we went to the African-American neighborhood on the west side of the city. And this neighborhood is literally on the fence line of oil refineries owned by Shell and Chevron, as well as a number of petrochemical facilities. And this is a neighborhood where people are dying from cancer and children as young as two years old are have to use inhalers and breathing devices in order to cope with the pollution in their air. This is also a community that has organized to find solutions. Hilton Kelly, a resident of the Port Arthur neighborhood, learned how to use air monitoring devices and brought them into his community to test the air in his neighborhood. 
and his air monitoring showed high levels of cancer-causing chemicals like benzene and toluene, which are emitted by these refineries. High concentrations. Monday, Mossville, Louisiana. The first thing that you see is a wide expanse of smokestacks and storage tanks that seem to just go for miles. And it's in the midst of that where the community of Mossville is located. The bus rolled in Mossville the week after one of the facilities had released a large amount of vinyl chloride into the, into the environment through an accidental leak. And vinyl chloride is a very potent human carcinogen. And it's one of the main chemicals that folks in Mossville are very concerned about because there's so much vinyl production that goes on in their community by five facilities. And you got to understand that these facilities operate, some of them across the street from residents' homes. They live under the constant threat that any accident could be the accident that does them in. Saturday, Whitesville, West Virginia. The folks there were white and they were poor, but their situations were not unlike the situations in the African-American neighborhoods and communities that we visited in Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee. They too were being subjected to the environmental injustice of polluting operations, in their case, coal companies that had ruined the water with the runoff from the mountaintop removal operations and made it so that residents could not even drink their water from their taps. We were able to go up in a small plane where we saw the destruction of mountaintop removal uh, in the area. Sunday, Washington, D.C. Our tour demonstrated that for so many communities across America, environmental protection is a myth, but each of these communities hold the answer for reforming our system and truly making environmental protection something that protects and values the lives of all people. Monique Harden is a lawyer and one of the organizers of this year's Environmental Justice for All tour. Just ahead, the thirst for water becomes a fight for life for the Florida manatees. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Percy. Oh, I just ate half the carton of fudge brownie ice cream. I really shouldn't eat more. Oh, but those little chunks of fudge taste so good. Maybe I should have one more little spoonful. Oh, another one wouldn't hurt. Maybe just two more. Have you ever kept eating and eating, knowing you should stop? Scientists at Brookhaven National Laboratory have identified the brain pathways that motivate our desire to overeat, linking them to the regions of our brain responsible for emotional and addictive behaviors. To view these pathways, researchers implanted a device into the stomachs of seven obese patients. When the device was turned on, it stimulated the stomach to expand and release the peptides responsible for telling the brain whether or not the body is full. 
The scientists compared scans of the patient's brains when the device was turned on and off. They found that when the device was on, there was a significant increase of activity in the regions of the brain most closely associated with emotion. Most of that activity occurred in the hippocampus, an area of the brain linked to emotional behaviors, learning, memory, and sensory impulses. The study also shows that eating triggers the same part of the brain that is responsible for addictive behavior. This creates a desire to eat more and more, even when we are full. The study is the first direct evidence that brain regions are involved in our physical response to eating. So the next time you find yourself reaching for that second slice of cake, don't let your stomach do the talking. It might be telling your brain something else. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Jennifer Percy. This week, it's our pleasure to announce that Living on Earth is now part of a new family, Public Radio International, or PRI. That makes us partners with the fine folks who bring you the BBC, the world, and this American life, among many great shows. And that means we'll serve you even better with the coverage of environmental change that you've come to count on. If you have story ideas you'd like us to consider, please get in touch. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Or call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The famous oceanographer Jacques Cousteau first visited northeast Florida's Blue Spring to report on the plight of the manatee in 1970. The picture then was grim. Pleasure boats jammed the creek that flows out of the spring, and the 11 manatees that sought refuge in the spring's warm waters were being harassed. Some people rode them with rope harnesses. Some animals had initials carved in their backs. Even the youngest calves had propeller scars from collisions with boats traveling too fast. Then Mr. Cousteau and his son produced a television documentary called The Forgotten Mermaids, and everything changed. Floridians opened their hearts to the plant-eating mammal. Blue Spring was protected as a state park, and all of Florida's waters became a sanctuary for manatees. The manatee population rebounded. But now the slow-moving manatee has run into a new challenge. And 36 years after his father and grandfather made that famous film, Philippe Cousteau returned to Blue Spring and offers this perspective on the present plight of the manatee. Deep cobalt blue water surges up out of a dark limestone chasm in the woods known as Blue Spring. On a warm summer day here, a few swimmers are splashing in the 72-degree waters of the springhead and in the creek that runs off from it. As it flows out to the St. John's River, it meanders through a jungle-like forest of cypress, sable palms, and wild grapevines. Herons balance on stilt-like legs at the water's edge as an alligator with a black hide ribbed like tire treads hangs near the far shore. Although this aquatic mammal now has its own fan club, its own festival, its own designation as the state's official marine mammal, and its own place in the hearts of many Floridians, its future is clouded. Looking like a giant gray plush toy with small front flippers, a flat, heavy tail, and tiny human-like eyes, the manatee seems as if it has been jerry-rigged together. The closest living land relative would be the elephant. Patrick Rose is a former Florida Department of Environmental Protection biologist who now directs the Save the Manatee Club. If you look at the upper lips of a manatee, they can grab a hold of vegetation much like an elephant can use its trunk. Manatees, since they are mammals like we are, react the same way from long immersions in cold water. They may suffer from hypothermia or pneumonia, both of which can be fatal. In summer, 
These manatees graze in the tea-colored water of the St. John's River and throughout southern coastal waters in bays, rivers, and marinas. But by winter, the river water turns cold. It's then that the warm-blooded manatees are in jeopardy of cold stress and death, so they swim upstream into the comparatively warm water of Blue Spring. This is a very critical spring for manatees. In fact, it's one of the few places in Florida where the manatee population is actually growing. And without those natural springs to anchor them during the wintertime, the manatee's future is very unsecure. Out in the vegetation next just came up. Wayne Hartley is the ranger at Blue Spring. Today, he takes me out in a canoe in the Spring Creek to get a closer look at a manatee that is just straight in. Under us, the clear Spring Creek seems like a giant aquarium. Oh, he's swimming around now, you can see him. <laughs> well, they don't have to play over there. When I come out here, if this dark water is down, and of course it'd be on the bottom in the winter. Wayne first started identifying and counting the manatees here some 25 years ago. Ironically, the propeller and boat keel scars on most manatees help hardly distinguish one from the other. Oh, is that a gar? What is that called? Long nose gar. Long nose gar. It's beautiful through here, isn't it? It's kind of primordial. All this moss hanging down from these old trees, hanging out over the water. The water is crystal clear, too. I mean, you can see straight to the bottom. I think it's Phyllis out there, who I believe is the daughter of Phoebe, who was here in 1970. No kidding. A Carolina Wren song cuts through the sound of passing boats in the river channel. Ranger Hartley shows me a list of manatees that dates to when my father and grandfather were first at Blue Spring. This is the uh, manatees that have come in here since 7071. Right. Starting with these are the ones that yeah. Philippe and Jacques filmed. It's incredible. I gotta tell you, it means, means a lot to me to be back here after, you know, knowing my father and mother, because yeah. uh, my mom was on the expedition as well. They filmed 11 manatees. That's how many we had back there in 7071. Hartley can now identify over 400 manatees by scar configuration, and each has an unlikely name, like Phoebe, Millie, Carl, Chuck, Milton, and Merlin and Brutus, who were here in 1971. Some he met as calves, others as 2,500-pound, 14-foot-long adults, and he knows them by personality, too. And it's just like people. Some manatee calves are very well-behaved and stay with their mother, and other manatee calves are little brats who don't come when they're called and ignore their mother. But now this place, Blue Spring, where manatee protection began, is seen by some as a giant water tank that can provide for thousands of new residents who want to call Florida home. Pro-growth advocates like Susan Darden, director of the Volusia County Home Builders Association, support a plan to tap the spring. She says the increased need for water is simply a byproduct of a healthy economy. It's easy to blame development, and development is, and nobody likes to hear this, but development is just a part of, it's, we supply places for people to live. And people need, human beings need clothing, food, and shelter. And that's what they need. We provide the shelter part. People want to live in Florida. 
And you know, this is still the United States. And if you want to live in Florida, we're going to try and accommodate you. And if we can't hear somewhere in the state, we can. Um, unfortunately, as Americans, we tend to use a lot of water. People are going to move to Florida. This is a beautiful area. Do you blame them? Floridians actually use considerably more water than the average American, 170 gallons per day per person, compared to the national average of 110. Springs aren't the only places manatees seek warmer water. They've actually found refuge in the warm discharge from power plants. But some of these plants are closing, so manatees must rely more on natural refuges such as the springs. The St. John's River Water Management District, when it next meets on October 10th, may allow withdrawals that will diminish Blue Spring by 16% from its current volume and decrease the amount of warm habitat for the animals by 37%. To understand the significance of that, it helps to know something about how the springs used to flow and how springs are connected underground throughout the Florida Peninsula. Blue Spring, described by naturalist William Bartram in the 18th century as a diaphanous fountain, once surged with such force that rowboats had difficulty paddling atop the springhead. When its flow was first measured in the 1930s, it was 125 million gallons a day. But before the heavy rains from hurricanes two years ago, it had dropped to 84 million gallons a day. Critics like Patrick Rose are outraged the water district would consider taking more. Blue Spring is already down in terms of its volume of flow, and it's also substantially more polluted. I, I began swimming here more than 30 years ago and diving and working with manatees. And I'm just walking down this morning, I was looking at the spring and how much further degraded it was, even in the last several years. So we are down volume, we're polluted, and now we're going to reduce the volume more. Under the plan before the water district, local utilities couldn't keep taking water from Blue Spring forever. Over the next 18 years, they would have to switch to river water. Why not use river water from the start? Because it's polluted with agricultural and suburban runoff, and drinking it will require building several expensive treatment plants. The way Rose and other advocates see it, manatees are being asked to pay the price for Florida's pro-growth policies and legacy of chemically treated lawns and fields. And Blue Spring and the fight here symbolizes what this is all about. But now it's being threatened from things that are miles and miles away because this is not just an, one spring right here. It's connected to a whole network through the, under, through the underground aquifer in Florida. The recharge areas are huge from which feed the water that comes here. And we're not being responsible with the rest of that basin. Recharge. It's a word you often hear in a state where plentiful rain soaks through limestone and into a shallow water table. The rain seeps down through the uplands and replenishes the maze of underground streams and rivers in the limestone below, then surges up into the springs. During my visit, I dived inside this 120-foot deep spring to understand the hydrology a little better, and I came away with a sense of awe for the enormous energy that upwells from inside the dark lime rock. Bob Rundle manages Blue Spring State Park. Like other rangers, he worries that reducing the spring flow will hurt the manatees that migrate here in droves when the river temperature drops into the low 60s during the winter. The worst case scenario is uh, low pool, water levels in the middle of winter with a really, really bad cold snap. A cold snap is going to last several days or a week. Um, where you get very, very cold temperatures and the river water is already cold and if you've got a really low level in the river and the water level is low here in the spring that, that all the manatees potentially could not fit in here. There are over 200 manatees in Blue Spring now 
and projections of 300 more in years to come. One of the greatest fears is that without enough water to keep them warm, the herd will simply begin to die, one by one. I travel north to Palatka, Florida, to ask Hal Wilkening, the water district's environmental engineer, about the new spring water withdrawal system. If this is so mired in controversy, so risky potentially, for not just for the manatees, as you pointed out, but for the natural resources here, for the future of the state, um, why even propose this? Why not require them to find the surface water alternatives right away? What we've been um, directed to do by the Florida legislature is to do water supply planning. There's a lot of efforts underway now to um, fully utilize and reclaim water resources to meet uh, irrigation demands so they're not meeting irrigation demands from groundwater. Then beyond that, they're uh, working on using surface water from the river to augment their reclaimed water systems to kind of maximize the use of reclaimed water. Uh, we actually built a, a, a pilot plant down at, it's, at Sanford down on Lake Monroe and ran it for a uh, year and a half. And, you know, we showed these utilities that this water is treatable. There's a way to treat it, and um, it's, uh, we showed them what the cost would be. Skeptics point out that Water Management District board members were appointed by Florida Governor Jeb Bush, who is a developer and a strong pro-growth advocate. Is there a point where we draw the line, no more that, that, we, that we have to draw the line of development, uh, we just can't let people come in and continue to come in? Is there a point that we reach? When do we reach that point? Is, is there, what kind of discussion has there been about, about that? Or is that something that people don't want to talk about? Linda Burnett, the public information officer for the Water Management District, gives me a very straightforward answer. Well, we are legislatively mandated to provide water, so that's our job to do. Florida used to have an abundance of water, and regional flood control districts were set up to drain it away. But those became water management districts in the early 1970s, charged with protecting the water resources. They can do studies, promote conservation, and restrict the times when homeowners can water their yards. But they have no powers to limit new developments, even if they are sucking the groundwater dry. Some city officials require the reuse of gray water for irrigation, but most do not. Water district boards are at the mercy of a growth economy that welcomes 1,000 new residents a day into Florida. To top it off, there's disagreement about whether manatees really are in recovery. The state of Florida recently downlisted them from endangered to threatened. Patrick Rose has his doubts. We really need people to understand that, that it's in certain people's best interest to paint the picture for manatees better than it is, because that will give them opportunities to sort of exploit the habitat. I can see that the big money special interests for the growth and development generally are weighing out with our politicians, and nature is really coming second. All the research shows that manatees in Blue Spring and in the Crystal River, Homosassa Spring area on the northwest Gulf Coast are increasing but they only account for 16% of the Florida population. And other studies indicate as much as half the state's manatees may be lost in the next 45 years, mostly due to accidents in which boaters are moving too fast for manatees to get out of the way. It makes me yearn for a simpler time when there were fewer people and fewer boats. And Florida springs flowed freely, as powerful as the diaphanous fountain that naturalist Bartram once described. To satisfy my yearning, I tracked down Gordon Pearson, Jr., who lived here as a young boy in 1970 when his family owned the spring where Forgotten Mermaids was filmed as part of the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. Any, anything you remember in particular? Any stories? Or? Well, just after it aired, 
we got letters from high school to elementary kids from all over the every place that aired would get letters wanting us to protect the manatee and you know see what we could do to make sure they survived and my dad credits your dad or your grandfather and your dad was selling this place to the state because before that happened the state didn't realize this place was even here everything we do makes a difference as for the manatees we should consider whether what we do today at blue spring will help or harm the florida environment we all love my grandfather made this observation after working to successfully return an injured manatee to his natural home in the St. Johns River. We can never say we gave him freedom, for freedom is not man's to give. Man can only take it away. When we released Sam from captivity, we merely returned him to what was already his by nature. Perhaps if we protect the natural systems that allow manatees to flourish, future generations will know some of the magic I've experienced at Blue Spring during my own visit and these forgotten mermaids will forever be remembered. For Living on Earth, I'm Philippe Cousteau. Our story on manatees comes to Living on Earth courtesy of Earth Echo International. For more about manatees, go to our website, livingonearth.org. Next week on Living on Earth, Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman's strong environmental record won him the endorsement of major conservation groups in his close re-election contest. But on his way to losing the Democratic nomination to keep his seat, he also lost many environmental voters because of his support of the war in Iraq. Senator Lieberman now hopes many Republicans will support him in his independent bid to stay in Washington, but the issue of the war is still in the campaign. Every war is an environmental disaster, and you, you can think in these kind of compartmentalized ways, but, but it's not a real, it's not an honest assessment of the way the world is. War as an environmental issue, next week on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in a riverine marsh in Florida. Lang Elliott and Ted Mack went to the Wasissa River's edge and recorded chattering grebes, a limpkin, and the harsh call of a red shoulder paw. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Emily Torgrimson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Ian Gray, Tobin Hack, and Jennifer Percy. Special thanks this week to Terry Dreyer, Ned McLeod, and Bill Belleville. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Jeff Turton engineered this week's program. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. 
I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Park Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.